The following lecture was produced by the Rhode Island Student Assistance Services with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Welcome to the Rhode Island Youth Mental Health Webinar Series. This week's topic, Trauma Impact on Latinx Children and Immigrant Families, presented by Kalina Brabeck and Myra Pagoro Bueno. Remember, your feedback is important to us. Please complete the survey at the end of the webinar to be entered into a drawing for a $100 gift card. Okay, hello, and welcome to our webinar, Después de la Lluvia Sale el Sol, Trauma, Stress, and Resiliency Among Latinx Youth and Immigrant Families. For non-Spanish speakers, Después de la Lluvia Sale el Sol, translates literally into after the rain comes out the sun or after the difficult comes the beautiful. And we chose this title to highlight the strength and resiliency among Latinx youth, as well as their families and communities. My name is Kalina Brabeck and I am joined by mi colega, my colleague, Mayra. Hi, thank you. Uh Dr. Brebeck. So my name is Myra Piguero Bueno, and I work as a student assistance counselor in two high schools here in the state of Rhode Island. So I'm going to start the presentation and do the first half, and then Myra will do the second half of the presentation. We're going to start just by orienting us to the numbers of kids in Rhode Island who identify as Latinx. We'll define trauma and differentiate it from adversity and stress. We'll talk about some specific types of trauma and adversity that might affect Latinx kids. We'll talk a little bit about how trauma disrupts learning in school. And we'll introduce you to the principles of a trauma-informed approach. And then Maida will give you some tips on how to engage Latinx kids who have experienced adversity and trauma, as well as how to help them re-regulate when they get triggered. She will also talk about how to leverage the cultural strengths and supports of your students and their families and communities. And finally, how to manage our own stress and reactions and practice self-care in the work that we do. So I just want to start by reminding us that Latinx kids are a growing segment of our population of kids in Rhode Island. So about one in four kids in Rhode Island identifies as Latinx. And similarly, about one in four kids has an immigrant parent. And you can see here in that orange shade there that that percentage has grown from 1990 to 2018. And here in Rhode Island, about half of the families that have immigrant parents, the, the parents have come from Latin America. And the most common sending countries to Rhode Island include the Dominican Republic, Guatemala, Colombia, and Mexico. So I next want to define trauma and distinguish it from adversity and stress. And then I'll talk a little bit about some specific forms of trauma and adversity that might affect Latinx students in your classrooms. A traumatic event is understood as one that is intense and overwhelming, and that involves serious loss, threat, or harm to a person's physical and or psychological well-being. It's an experience that overwhelms a person's capacity to cope. And as we'll talk about a little bit, the ways that we cope in the short term to survive trauma may create problems for us in the long term. And finally, it's an experience that leads to a long-lasting change. So let's now distinguish trauma from stress and adversity. Stress is anything that life brings our way that has the potential to upset our balance. And a certain amount of stress is normal and it's tolerable, and it can even be positive in motivating our behavior. So for example, if I'm stressed about a test I have tomorrow, I'm more likely to study for it. With adversity, a person experiences intense levels of stress over a long period of time. 
So there's this overactivation of the stress response system, and the person really doesn't come down to baseline because the stressor never really goes away. So experiences that fall in this category might be living in poverty or managing a chronic medical condition or perhaps having a loved one who has a mental health or a substance use problem. And the effects of adversity on kids can be particularly damaging and toxic when the adversity occurs outside of the context of the presence of a caring, stable, nurturing caregiver who can buffer the effects of these events. With trauma, the stress has far overwhelmed a person's capacity to cope, and there is no off button. Unlike stress, which is normal, trauma is never normal. There is no return to baseline, and healing can take a long time. We can also differentiate between different types of trauma. So for example, acute trauma are traumatic events that occur in a single place in time and are usually short-lived. Although the effects may not be short-lived, the event itself is short-lived. So for example, a school shooting or a car accident or a natural disaster might fall in this category. Chronic trauma involves exposure to traumatic events over a period of time, and it could be the same event over and over or a series of different events. So examples here might include domestic violence, chronic physical abuse, or living in the context of war or political violence. Complex trauma describes when traumatic events happen to kids that are perpetrated by the very people that are meant to support and care for the child. And so it involves that fundamental betrayal of relationships. An example here would include a child who is being sexually abused by a caregiver. And finally, historical trauma is collective and cumulative trauma that's experienced by a group across generations, and the group is still feeling the effects of it today. So this includes experiences of discrimination, oppression, and racism, whose effects are ongoing and experiences are ongoing in the present, but they're also carried over from past generations, traumatic experiences. So for example, the African-American community continues to be affected by the collective experience of slavery, of previous generations' experiences of Jim Crow laws, and of the long history that is continuing and ongoing of police violence against black and brown bodies. Next, I'm gonna discuss some specific types of trauma and adversity that might affect Latinx students in your classrooms. And I'll be drawing here in some slides on some recent research that I did with the Latinx, with Latinx immigrant high school students. So first and second generation kids. This first slide is kids count data and it highlights the adversity that many Latinx students face. Here we see the economic disparities that Latinx kids face compared with their racial and ethnic peers. So compared with white children, they're more likely to live in poverty and their parents are less likely to own a house or have a high school education. And not on this slide, but worth mentioning, um, also kids count data on social welfare indicators tells us that compared to white students, Latinx students are six times as likely to be involved with the juvenile justice system. They're over twice as likely to have an incarcerated parent and they're twice as likely to be in the child welfare system. In the study that I did, I found that Latinx high school students reported high levels of discrimination. So for example, one in three reported that others that, um, had low expectations of them because of their race or ethnicity, did not include them because of their race or ethnicity, or they were called racially insulting names. One in five perceived that they had been wrongly disciplined because of their race or ethnicity, 
and nearly one in 10 reported being hassled by the police because of their race or ethnicity. And I also found that across legal statuses of the youth themselves, that many youth worried about immigration enforcement. I found that one in two kids in my study was worrying about a family member's deportation, one in two was worrying about their own deportation, and one in two kids in the study knew someone personally who had been deported. And I also found that participants in our study had been exposed on average to nearly seven traumatic events over their lifetime, and here you can see the breakdown of those experiences. And in this slide, you can see how different adverse and traumatic experiences show up in students' behavior and mental health. In our study, two-thirds of the students in our study scored within the clinical range for anxiety, one-half scored within the clinical range for depression, and one-third for PTSD. Discrimination and trauma exposure predicted in our study statistically acting out behaviors, substance use, PTSD, anxiety, and depression. And immigration enforcement exposure predicted anxiety and depression. I also want to briefly talk about some experiences that are unique to recently arrived immigrant youth. For immigrant youth, up to three quarters of them have been separated from at least one parent in the context of migration. And sometimes these youth will then migrate to the United States in part to reunite with parents here. And you've probably heard in the news stories about kids crossing the border in increasing numbers by themselves, referred to as unaccompanied migrant youth or perhaps as unaccompanied minors. In addition to wanting to reunite with families here, many of these children, actually most of them, are also fleeing conditions of violence and extreme poverty in their countries of origin. Not only is the journey of, of migrating by yourself very dangerous and puts you at risk of experiencing trauma, but once unaccompanied migrant youth then cross the border, they're put for days into immigration holding centers, often referred to as las hieleras or ice boxes because of their freezing cold temperatures. They spend sometimes months in Office of Refugee Resettlement detention centers or shelters before they get released to a sponsor in the United States, which often is a parent, but sometimes might be an 18-year-old cousin. These youth are particularly likely to have been exposed to trauma, including in their country of origin and during the migration journey. And they also have other significant sources of adversity, like significant interruptions in schooling and insecure legal status, which means that they could again be at risk of being separated from the very parent that they came here to reunite with. Now I'm next gonna talk a little bit about what happens in kids' brains when they're exposed to trauma and how that affects learning and behavior. You can think of the brain as having three separate areas with distinct functions. And while they're different, these areas function together in order to protect the individual. And really the brain's primary function is to ensure our survival. The cerebellum and the brainstem at the back of the brain regulate what we think of as automatic functions like breathing and heart rate. You don't have to think to take a breath. And sometimes this is called the lizard brain because of the very primitive functions that it governs. Next, moving forward, is the limbic brain in the midbrain. And this is composed of the memory and emotion centers. And it alerts us to situations that provoke emotional responses. And this is sometimes called the mammalian brain because we share it in common with other mammals. And this is where traumatic events first register in the brain. And sometimes this is called the brain smoke detector. It lets us know when we're under threat. And in people who are exposed to trauma, this part of the brain becomes overactive. And so people start to see threat where there actually is none present. 
and multiple exposures to traumatic events can also cause this area to dominate and to become disconnected from the next area, which is the neocortex, which is kind of like the master computer of the brain that allows us to do all sorts of higher order thinking things, like to manage our impulses and emotions and behaviors and to organize ourselves and to plan in order to achieve long-term goals and to problem solve. This is the last area of the brain to develop. It continues to develop well into emerging adulthood. And this is the part of the brain that goes offline that we, have, we don't have access to when that smoke detector in the limbic system detects a threat and goes into a survival mode. When someone experiences a traumatic event, the amygdala in that limbic or midbrain area sets off an alarm. And this initiates a series of survival-based responses um, including the activation of the autonomic nervous system and the release of stress hormones. And this is the reaction that we think of as fight or flight, and it prepares the body to defend or escape. Sometimes, however, fight or flight is not an option, and this is particularly the case for kids. When you are powerless, or even if you just perceive yourself to be powerless, you may not be able to fight or flee. So instead, the body will go into a freeze or surrender mode, and the most primitive areas of the brain, that lizard brain, is in control. And instead of fleeing physically, the person flees psychologically by shutting themselves down, by disconnecting themselves from their experiences, and by dissociating or psychologically taking themselves out of their body away from their experiences in order to be protected when physical escape is not an option. Now, just as the brain goes into survival mode during the original traumatic event, it also goes into survival mode in the present when it gets triggered. And so students without thinking, remember those higher order regions of the brain are shut down, react in the present as though the past were happening. And some common triggers for kids who have experienced trauma include unpredictable events, like say a fire alarm going off, having too many things happening at once, sensory overload, situations where they might feel vulnerable or become frustrated and being confronted or overpowered, or even just perceiving being confronted or overpowered. When kids get triggered, then they tend to get pushed into one of these two extremes. Either they become hyper aroused at the top there, where they're in that fight or flight mode, they're activated, they're escalated, they may, may appear angry, aggressive, impulsive, emotional, or they may shut down and appear and present as hypo aroused at the bottom there where they're shut down, they seem dissociated or withdrawn, they seem disconnected, maybe like they're on autopilot going through the motions, but not really there. So not all kids with trauma will have those disruptive behaviors in the classroom. Sometimes it'll be the kid at the back of the class who's sitting with their hoodie over their head and seems disconnected from what's happening in the classroom. And our goal, of course, is to get kids back into this middle zone where they can be connected to their experiences in the present moment without being overwhelmed by them. So you might ask yourself, having heard that, when's the last time that you found yourself in survivor, survival brain? And when you were in that mode, how easy would it have been to diagram a sentence or to compute fractions? To remind us of what he just talked about, when we're in survival mode, we like black or white, we like certainty, we don't like ambiguity, and we don't like to feel a loss of control. And when we're in that state, Verbal rationale and lectures and confrontation 
can often only escalate the situation. So finally, I'm going to talk a little bit about how we approach and interact with our students from a trauma-informed perspective generally, and then Maida will be giving us more specific strategies. So first and foremost, teaching in a trauma-informed way involves a fundamental shifting of our attitude from one of judgment, what's wrong with you, to one of empathic curiosity, or what has happened to you, and how did you learn to survive that? As we've mentioned, traumatic experiences can cause people to react with these protective survival behaviors and instincts of fight, flight, and freeze. But because those survival instincts can also emerge in everyday situations that are not actually threatening, those behaviors are often misunderstood and they can be difficult to respond to. When we're in the presence of someone who is reacting to a threat, whether it's perceived or whether it's real, that can also significantly impact our emotional state. And we can get pulled down into a parallel reactive spiral of our own fight, flight, freeze responses. And without a pause and a shift in attitude, we're likely to respond to the student from an with an emotion-led behavior. And then again, that can often be counterproductive to the situation. However, when we recognize the possibility that trauma may be a factor, in these behaviors, then we can understand that um, we need to approach them with an attitude of empathic curiosity. So for example, the student who is shut down and not answering questions may be in freeze mode to deal with overwhelming emotions of a traumatic loss. Or the student who has a domestic violence situation at home may respond with aggressive fight behaviors to what we think are pretty routine questions. When we are working from a trauma-informed perspective, we recognize that just as many traumas happened in the context of relationships, so too does healing happen in the context of relationship. And we're guided by these principles that you see here. Creating context of emotional and uh, physical safety. Creating and being transparent so that we can build trust. So helping students know what's happening and why it's happening and when. Collaborating with them and showing mutual respect where we engage students as partners in their learning and not as bodies to be controlled. Practicing cultural humility and affirming all identities and building on the strengths in our students as well as their families and their communities. In a trauma-informed school, the adults in the building are prepared to recognize and respond to those who have been impacted by traumatic stress. And students are provided with clear expectations and communication strategies to guide them through stressful situations. And the goal is really not just to provide tools to manage extreme situations, but really to cultivate an underlying culture of respect and support and safety in the classroom. A trauma-informed classroom is one where we realize that trauma is widespread, and we recognize how it impacts our students and ourselves, and it shows up in our classrooms and we actively resist interacting with them in ways that might be re-traumatizing. And I just wanna briefly define re-traumatization. Re-traumatization is a situation, an interaction, or it could be an environmental factor that replicates events or dynamics of prior traumas. And it triggers the same feelings and reactions associated with those original traumas. Now, re-traumatization can be obvious or not obvious. So an obvious example might be how a loud sound is triggering for a student who had a shooting in their neighborhood. But a non-obvious example might be having a meeting with a student and closing the door in order to protect their privacy, not realizing that that student's abuse started with someone with an adult closing a door. 
Retraumatization is usually unintentional. When we when we cause retraumatization, we're often unaware that our behavior or the situation is somehow replicating the dynamics of past trauma. But although it's typically unintentional, retraumatization is always hurtful. And being trauma-informed means that we're sensitive to the ways in which we might unintentionally and yet impactfully be re-traumatizing others. Now, I want to end my part by just looking at a couple of case studies to practice the shift in our perspective of applying a trauma-informed lens. So I'm going to read two case scenarios. And as I do, I want you to think, what would it be like to think about this student without a trauma lens? What might the student be experiencing? And then how does it change to put our trauma glasses on and look at this through a trauma-informed perspective? So Maria is a 13-year-old eighth grader. She most often appears disconnected and disinterested. She fidgets, avoids eye contact, she mumbles when adults ask her questions, and mostly doesn't appear to care about anything. She seems to understand the material and sometimes does well on assignments, but refuses to engage with others during the school day. Teachers complain that she often puts her head down and attempts to sleep during class. And that's gets increasingly frustrating for adults who keep prompting Maria to sit up and engage. These power struggles frequently end with Maria either leaving the classroom or putting her head down for the remainder of the period. And by background, Maria experienced chronic physical abuse and neglect from her aunt, with whom she stayed after her parents migrated to the U.S. And when she migrated four years ago to reunite with them, her parents had divorced and each remarried and had new children, and Maria now feels she doesn't belong anywhere. If we don't put our trauma glasses on, we might think Maria is lazy, she's unmotivated, she doesn't want to apply herself, she's just wasting her potential, and it's not okay to get away with this behavior in the classroom, even if she does okay in her assignments. What's Maria thinking? Maybe she's thinking, nobody really cares what happens to me. I can't deal with more expectations from adults, and what is the point in trying? Adults don't understand how hard my life is, and I can't trust other people, even if they say they're trying to help. Once we put our trauma glasses on, we can recognize Maria is focused on survival, and she can't expend a lot of energy on learning and being curious about other things. She may be in freeze mode most of the time as a way to manage her overwhelming emotions. And when I confront her, I'm just confirming her beliefs that adults don't understand or care, and I'm unknowingly triggering the dynamics of her past experiences, sending her right back into survival mode which makes it even harder for her to be present in my class. Finally, Madhavin is a sophomore in high school and is constantly in trouble at school. He has a very short fuse and will quickly become aggressive when adults call him out on his behavior or set limits. Madhavin is particularly confrontational toward male staff. His pattern is often to begin by challenging a teacher during class, either questioning what they're doing or refusing to participate. And from there, things escalate as Marvin becomes loud, paces around his desk, and is eventually ordered to leave the classroom. Once in the hallway, he becomes disruptive to other classrooms and has a lot of difficulty calming down. By background, Marvin has witnessed domestic violence and gun violence in his neighborhood, and he was bullied when he was younger. Marvin's grandmother cares for him at home, but often says she's not sure if she can continue to have him stay with her. If we don't have our trauma glasses on, we might think, Marvin's just trying to get out of anything he doesn't want to do. He's disrespectful, and he's purposely trying to make me look bad. He needs to learn that he cannot act like this and that authority figures are authority figures and he needs to respect us. What's Marvin thinking? He's probably thinking adults are frightening, unreliable, untrustworthy. They're out to get me and I need to get them before they get me. And I'm scared and out of control most of the time. When we put our trauma glasses on, we can recognize 
Marvin is feeling threatened and unsafe right now. He doesn't know how to connect with me in a positive way, even if he wants to. And creating a confrontational scene is not helpful and just confirms his beliefs that adults are unsafe and cannot be trusted. Puts him right into fight or flight where he is over aroused and he's angry and he's ready to defend himself. So now I'm going to turn it over to Maida. Thank you, Dr. Burbeck. So hello again. I want to start by talking to you about some of the lessons that I gathered from my time as a clinician in the CBITS program. This program is a cognitive behavior interventions for trauma in schools. It's a 10-week program delivered to students in middle schools throughout Rhode Island who have been exposed to multiple traumatic events, such as the ones that Dr. Rebecca shared with you. So the information that I'm going to share with you is informed by that practice and also by, in addition to that, my experience in working with kids in home-based uh, programs, um, many of whom were from Latinx families and, and have had uh, very similar experiences. So what I'm going to share with you are really ways to, um, to incorporate some promotion and development of social emotional skills within your classroom, including some self-awareness and self-management, as well as some social awareness. These suggestions are uh, considerations for you that can benefit any student, really. First thing I want to talk about is creating a safe space in your classroom. And so classrooms are usually safe spaces, but there might be some hidden stressors and, and triggers for, for some students. This is just one of my favorite quotes that I think kind of has captures the essence of what we want to do in any of our classrooms. It is that the fact that students don't care so much about what you know until they know how much you care. So anything that you can do to demonstrate that throughout your classroom and in your practice helps you connect with them. How do we do that? How do we create a safe space for students in, in our classrooms? And Dr. Rebecca had talked about unpredictability being one of the things that could be triggering. So predictability or having wide use of routines, uh, it's crucial. One way that this can help students is to give them the heads up if there's any changes in your schedule or if there's any physical changes in the classroom that they might experience before they walk into that classroom again the following day. Also creating a calm atmosphere as much as you can in your classroom. And that can vary from classroom to classroom, teacher to teacher. So depending on your resources, but trying to um, create the most calm experience as possible as you can. For some teachers, that might mean drawing the curtains. If there's too much going on on the outside for some some classrooms that are on the first floor, there might be too much activity going outside, which could really distract the kids or even trigger some of them. And so controlling the noise in your classroom, such as the one that's going on uh, office here, uh, we have in some of our classrooms, we have bell changes, right? So that needs to, I mean, schedule changes that needs to be marked by a bell. And so the bell could be very loud as it is in this room. And in some of the classrooms, you're able to control the volume of that bell. And so that will be a suggestion. If you could control that, that would be helpful because loud noises could be very startling and take you away from that concentration and put uh, students in a state of being triggered out at some, some kind of other situation that might have happened to them. Having uh, an ability to take some space within your classroom. So having some kind of a quiet corner or a take space 
corner. Some teachers that I've worked with have developed that where it's just an assigned space for students to be able to take some space themselves if they feel dysregulated and it's a very subtle way to help them self-regulate. And also being able to process as much as you can when uh, there are difficult moments within the school, within the classroom. One of these could be when there's a fire drill in the school, and that could be very unsettling, just just having the firemen come. And uh, for some of the kids that I've worked with, they've been through actual home fires. So getting back to the classroom and back to learning is really hard when that has, uh, when there's a fire drill. So being able to process that with them as much as you can for as long as you can when you get back just to, to do a check-in to see how people are doing and if they're able to reintegrate. So one of the things that I would do as part of our um, CPIS groups on a weekly basis was to do an emotional check-in, a daily check-in. So this can be in the form of just in your classroom, so it won't take too much time, a five five minute kind of go around the room where everyone will describe how they're feeling with a feeling word. And for some students, it might be helpful to have a visual, like a chart of the different feelings, what the expressions look like. And this can be specifically helpful for students who have limited language skills, English language skills, and um, just to kind of point out how they might be feeling. This helps them set the stage for a good day. Often we go through the day without kind of knowing what's going on for ourselves. And so this is a good way for them to have their own way to check their own emotional temperature. And so it gives also you as a teacher an idea of what the challenges for that student might be for that day and where they might need some extra support. Uh, it also sends the message to the student that their well-being is just as important as whatever you're going to be teaching that day. Also, incorporating some self-reflection throughout your classroom as much as you can. Um, it's another practice that we find is helpful in developing self-awareness and self-management. So, the way that this can look like is through some of the suggestions um, could be journaling throughout the, the day. So for um, some teachers, they find it helpful to do a kind of impromptu drop everything and write kind of a takeoff on the drop, drop everything and read um, the reflection for the day. It could be a minute, two minutes, whatever time you might have to spare. Something um, that they learned for the day, something that might be on their mind. Another way to kind of provide with the self-reflection uh, all throughout could be scheduling check-in times with the student. And this can be when you have some downtime, you can check in with the student within the classroom time where, you know, they the other students might be working on other things, or it could be an after-school kind of situation if you have time. Just a way to check with students and see how they think they're doing and to listen for maybe an unmet need as an opportunity to get, get some feedback from them. Also considering assignments that can lead them to self-exploration and reflection like poems, writing poems, uh, writing songs, autobiographies are pretty good where um, they have an opportunity to kind of tell you about their, their life story. And also a life map um, activity has been helpful for some teachers where they might kind of start a quarter or the school year uh, by emulating um, a life map, their own life map. So picking five to 10 moments in their life that can make up uh, who they are and kind of describe for students who they are. And then go around the room and see who uh, might want to take a chance at doing that.
a lot of students love being able to share kind of who they are with others. Some of them might be a little shyer about it, but if you give an opportunity to kind of, you know, do a life map activity throughout the school year, some of them might warm up to that, to that um, experience later on. And also um, just consider referring the students to um, your school support staff, not only um, when the schools are in trouble, the students are in trouble or there is something that might be going on. But if you think that that if you're not sure, right, that that uh, student is getting, you know, as much uh, attention or you're not really sure how they might be doing or they, they might not have opened up to you as much. If you have a school support team that can uh, support you in that, um, just making a referral for a check in with, with a a trusting adult. So um, some ways to help students regulate when they're triggered. So we, um, now that we've talked a little bit about, about you investing time and energy and creating a safe space for your students in the classroom, this is a great way to, as a first step, right, in preventing some of the overall triggers that can appear for students that have been traumatized in some way. Helping them with being aware of their emotions and how to self-manage will be a tool for alleviating some of the impact that the surrounding environment will have on those students. However, students will be triggered and there will be situations where you need to intervene to assist that student during those critical times. So these are some things to consider. So again, kind of in the spirit of uh, setting the stage and um, being intentional in teaching self-management skills. So what we talked about so far was more kind of setting the classroom as a you know, overall for everyone. But also realizing that there are going to be these times where students are going to have a tough time dealing with certain situations. And so setting time aside to explore with students, with the whole group, what they can do to feel safe when they are in crisis. So this could be, again, done as a, as a group activity where everyone will identify what might help them kind of get through a difficult time. So for some of them might be taking some space and breathing. You can practice some deep breathing with them, talking to someone in the building, right? A trusting adult that they might have connected with or taking a walk outside if that's a possibility. Some schools have more policies around that, but some schools have more of an open opportunity for students to be able to take a walk through the hallway. So maybe talking to an administrator and seeing if that's an option for some of your students in your class and also creating a helpful visible guideline for your students to be able to refer to. So these will be options for the things that they can do when they're in a crisis. So it could be some of those things that they identify for themselves and other things that other students have identified. So posting those as you would rules and, you know, kind of regular things that you need to remind yourself on a regular basis, things that you want them to be in their forefront, uh, having those visible, posting them in a visible place, very helpful. And learning together as a group to stay calm. So helping them decrease the, the effects of stress and help them figure figure out what's self-soothing for them uh, during difficult moments. So this will be an ongoing practice that could become a master skill that you can access then when in those times of crisis. So if you make it a regular practice, it, it would hopefully be something that will be easily accessible to them in those times of difficulty. 
obviously demonstrating your own way to self-soothe and self-regulate and, you know, stay calm and those practices that you do for yourself. It's helped, very helpful as you are the example for them. So one of the things that people have considered doing and have been, become helpful for uh, some classrooms have been to kind of embrace mindfulness. And as we know, there's tons of research and information on how mindfulness can help a classroom overall kind of you know, that emotional temperature to stay down. And especially, um, these studies have found that especially for students who have been through traumatic experiences. So mindfulness is not for everyone. Um, so there are some things to consider. Again, you will be the one to kind of pick out in the literature what might work for you. But some things that I'd like you to keep in mind as you're considering mindfulness will be not all students will be comfortable with doing for example, guided meditation, which is one of the things that mindfulness in the classroom could entail. Things like closing their eyes or shutting off the lights uh, for some of these exercises uh, might feel unsafe and might be triggering for some kids. So just keep that in mind as you are, you know, thinking of adopting some of these uh, mindful techniques. And also consider teaching mindfulness practices that don't require any specific you know, supplies or gear or anything that they might have accessible to them. So you want to make these to be as simple as anything they can do anywhere they are at home, like a deep breathing. These are some basic things that you could try, quiet deep breathing, a minute it could take, and it could be something you do before starting a lesson or before transitioning uh, somewhere else. And again, there's tons of information as to how to do deep breathing and how to teach it. Uh, to so again, it doesn't have to take too much time of your teaching your lesson, but it could add a significant amount of time overall because you're taking the time to help them kind of move through uh, the difficult times. So playing calm music or having nature sounds play in the background when they're working on assignments, it'll just help kind of keep that uh, emotional temperature low. And it, it would also help with uh, concentration as we know that the research supports. And guided mindful stretching breaks after desks. So this might be the least disruptive. This is something that won't take too much time, but it's kind of like the drop everything in, in right? A moment where you can just impromptu ask them to take a mindful stretch. And again, look to see what the shorter, most fitting version of a mindful stretch will be for you in your classroom and adopt that in a way that it could be helpful for you, again, to move through um, transitions or if you're starting or ending, you know, any particular lesson. So, so what to do in moments of crisis that we know are going to happen? And even though you set up you know, a safe space for them. And even though there is kind of all throughout a, a calm energy, let's, let's hope that there are in a lot of our classrooms. I've worked in many schools where the teachers take tons of time and planning and, you know, setting up this, this beautiful learning space. Things do happen and triggers do happen. And some of, sometimes are, they're hidden, right? And you can't control for every situation. So one of the things that you can do when there are students that are struggling with a certain moments, um, it could just be you asking them how you can help right now, right? So just asking them what they need to feel safe. 
those two questions are helpful. They're non-threatening, they're non-invasive, they're just kind of assuming that the child, that the student is going through something that's tough and you want to get them help and, and, and you're there for them. Listening to them, um, hopefully if they are at the point that they can talk to you, if they're not, you know, too uh, triggered into um, involved in that emotion, if they're able to talk to you, listening without giving any feedback, it's important. And um, so listening openly and non-judgmentally. It's, it's hard to do if you've been in that situation as a teacher and you know that there's other pieces to that situation and you think maybe the student has something to contribute to that. It's hard to not give your input, but it's really, really important to, to just be that listening adult that time. Reassure them and validate their feelings and that they're struggling. So putting words to those feelings that they're exhibiting and, you know, and saying, I can see you're struggling. I can see you, you seem, you know, not assuming that this is what they're going, you seem upset or you seem sad. So I'm here to help. What can I do to help you? Uh, what can I do to feel, uh, help you feel safe? Again, Going back to that first question and redirecting them to maybe using a coping skill that they have used in the past or they've identified. Another thing that you can do is, you know, definitely identify and access your resources within your school. So your school support team, important that um, some schools I know don't have a whole lot of people available, but some schools do have the privilege of having a social worker, a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a psychologist or um, an administrative person who might be like a, a dean of students or someone who might have the time to um, kind of provide you some support with that situation. Find out what the school policy on the crisis response is. If, you know, if it is uh, something that you can contain within your class, really knowing what the policy is will be helpful to you. And knowing if there's a trusting adult in the building, again, that this student has connected with, and it could be someone, um, another teacher, if they are available, it could be another staff person that they might have connected with throughout the school year. And being aware of what you need to address that situation is very important so that you can help the student. And that could be, you know, as, as far as do you need coverage for that classroom? If you need to be that trusting adult to be with the student, maybe getting coverage for your classroom will be helpful too. This point gives me a, a good segue to another great point, which is self-care. So please. So for educators, I didn't want to leave self-care for the last because it is it's usually the last thing that as a teacher, as a parent, as a as the adults in the, in our in our kids' lives that we think about, you know, to take care of ourselves. But it should be one of the first things, right? Because we're not able to take care of ourselves, then we're not able to be there for them when they need us. So finding a support network to help you process some of that those behaviors and the challenges that you're gonna uh, have within your classroom, especially if you have students who have uh, felt open enough to share some of their experiences. So you might hear some stories that are hard to hear. Um, and you might need to process that with um, someone else. Incorporating your own, during your own day, uh, your ways to practice, you know, uh, self-care. So like the way to take care of yourself throughout the day, whether it's that cup of coffee, that, you know, uh, coffee break that you might need, or deep breathing if you are in a situation where, you know, you're being challenged by some of the behavior. When you are the example, it, there's more buy-in, right? When you're able to, to show that this is, this is possible, that you're able to do it and you do it together. 
reading and staying informed, obviously, about trauma and some of the stuff that's going on within the school and within in the community. And also some of the, and I put it together here, even though it really is two separate things, but being informed as to what some of the social emotional initiatives for students are and for teachers. More schools are embracing the fact that teachers need to do their own self-care and they're establishing some, some mechanisms for, for that to be the case. So find out if there is something in terms of a support system for you or anything that could be helpful to you during those um, difficult moments. So. So last but not least, I wanted to just briefly touch on some of the culture strengths, right, that kind of bring us back to um, the population that we're talking about today, the Latinx community. We have seen that there are general characteristics, right, that kind of identify some of the Latinx cultures that you are, you know, from which uh, the students come from that you have in your classroom. So um, some of the important things to remember is how important and the importance and the influence of family, right? And the family interdependence that they are within a lot of our um, Latinx communities and all that extended family. For some of our students, the extended family might be the only family available in the, in this country. So for some of your recently arrived students, um, they might be staying with aunts and uncles and grandparents. Their their uh, parents might be back in their country. So realizing that um, there's strong emphasis that is placed on the family and that they can be a major source of identity. So because of that, you might have, some of your students might struggle a lot more because they might have that family separation. So their parents, again, as I said, uh, might be back in their country. So there is uh, that sense of family belonging and that in that's intense within uh, a lot of our uh, Latinx cultures. And, and sometimes that's just lim it's limited to family and close friends, right? So important for you to know that as much as you can always uh, trying to involve parents or the family within that school experience for um, students as much as you're able to access that. And a lot of our Latinx families also are very, um, again, these are general kind of guidelines and, and characteristics, cooperative and pro-social tendencies, right? So they basically um, would like to comply with, you know, kind of like the, the group. So if you realize that and know that you are able to use that within your classroom to know that whatever efforts you might have within the group to kind of help the group along that some of those children that you have from Latinx families um, might go along with that, right? And uh, might be easier for you to kind of access that because it's something that they're familiar with. Collectivism uh, or co collectivistic orientation, again, uh, kind of paying attention to the group. There are other things to kind of uh, think about um, fatalismo, which is something that we see in some of our families um, as being the belief that the individual can do little to alter fate, right? So that, um, and we see that a lot in families who might not look for health care because they think, you know, a diagnosis of a you know an illness might be just a death sentence. So, not seeking for that information, it's like you know at least I don't know that that's going to happen. So there's that sense of this can happen to you, this uh, fatalismo, like we call it, it's fatalistic thinking. Again, uh, general characteristics that we see in some of our families. Um, one interesting uh, thing is the the word um, sympathia, which is 
kindness, right? So there's a great emphasis on being polite and pleasant and kind of conforming to um, especially figures of authority, such as yourself as, as a teacher. So utilizing that and knowing that, keeping that in mind when you work with families that come from Latinx uh, backgrounds, that you are a source of authority and that um, some of your students might not express that distress or um, discomfort, even though they might be going through things because um, they don't, they just want to kind of be able to conform and, and um, follow along to, to that authority that you represent for them. And the idea of respect, right? Um, that because of that, you are you might have some some of those students be very compliant to again some of the rules and the ways that you do things in the classroom. Um, uh, respeto is is one of the you know widely uh, sought out or I will say values that kind of remains um, among a lot of our cultures. Whereas, especially like I said, with figures of authority, you. Um, have that very present. So there might be some sort of a wall and kind of a distance between you and that student where they might not be able to re- relate to you as much because they, they see that kind of wall and that distance. But uh, just remember that that can um, only, possibly only comes from uh, the fact that there's that sense of respect that you are an authority figure. As with everything in life, there are exceptions to every uh, family, obviously. Um, so we see that some families are more acculturated to, to this culture and more have assimilated more. So it all depends on how long the family has been in this country and what they're, you know, if they are one of our recently arrived families, um, they might not be as assimilated. So you might see some of these things more present. So. Finally, I wanted to get you back to what Dr. Rebecca said um, about the fact that healing happens just like learning happens in the context of relationships. So um, you have an opportunity to, as a teacher, really um, be instrumental in helping your students kind of move through uh, some of those um, difficult moments that just kind of denote the the experience that they have had. And that's where healing starts. So I appreciate all you do. And I thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. To find more content like this and see the video version of these webinars, please see the links in the description below. If you like this one, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.